Welcome back to Conversations of the Leaky Culture, episode 19, uh, chapters 11 through 18. And back with me this time are my astute colleagues back from NorwestCon 42, fresh and energized, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, you two. Hey, it's good to be back. Greetings. Greetings. It's good to have Ron, Hermione, and Harry back together today, or some amalgam of them, maybe Neville in there too. But in any case, y'all, I got to hear the, your recording at NorwestCon 42, and it sounded like it went really, really well. Yeah, I thought, I thought so. I mean, there was more people there than I was expecting. Uh, <laughs> I thought they were really energetic, and uh, yeah, it was just a great experience overall. Yeah, I think during the course of the afternoon, I was pretty anxious, to be perfectly honest. Um, but, you know, who would be there and um, if anybody would be there. So um, <laughs> yeah. it seems it seems like, and I think maybe Wes and I, we talked about this um, afterwards. And maybe this is one of Steph's brilliant um, conclusions or observations that, you know, not a lot of the panels allowed for um, conference goers to say chime in or give their opinion. And I think we made the right call in kind of building in some basically discourse time to illustrate our point and our our um, our project. And I thought that was pretty good. And I thought it was just a fantastic illustration, not only that you gave kudos to where we first did our training in this method of discourse, St. John's, um, now many years behind us, uh, both sadly and sweetly to say, but also that you actually engaged in the manner of discourse that we engage in. It's, it's more like we're Socrates and not um, Pythag or not Parmenides. That what what you you all tried to do is you shared your information, you shared your energy, and it did really sound like the crowd was energized. And Sarah, you even make the point near the end that you're like, wow, everybody seems pretty energized. They're asking good questions too, and you know it seemed far more like what my idea of a conference or a symposium was before I actually started going to them in undergrad and graduate school and seeing usually a fairly dry scholar talk about an issue that didn't really have any direct relevance to me, and that I you know, didn't spark much creative thought in me. And then maybe trying to ask them a hard question, but not really getting much of a chance to participate. So it, it really did sound like a different thing and very much an ideal thing. And also itself, its own good standalone conversation. Um, and so, you know, y'all, y'all were incredible. You were incredible. And the crowd seemed very good too. What, you know, what inspired y'all to to conduct the seminar or the the symposium or the conference in that way? Uh, I mean, I think we, we had a lot of ideas that we um, kind of threw out there. And what we decided was that the best, you know, illustration of, of it would be to let the people there participate as much as possible. And so we sort of thought that if we at a small enough group, we we do a more sort of formal, actual seminar. You know, try to carry on a a conversation, but that with a lot of people, it would be important to just hear from them. You know, what they were wondering and what they were noticing, and let them sort of have at it, um, and just kind of feel that that delight that comes of of looking you know seriously at something that otherwise might have just kind of passed them by in the in in the course of you know the immersion in the story. You know, and I mean, I think it, it forms a really nice, gentle introduction to to that sort of entry point of, of questioning a text. And, and at the same time, it, it gives you a sort of sense of the the perennial nature of that. Like you can always kind of go back and, and start fresh and wonder about things that um, might seem obvious, but, but the, the more you look at it, the more you find. Yeah, I thought Wes said it. Um, in our in our discussion of um, uh, what exactly we wanted to say, Wes, you said it really well. I think about how, um, and I, I cherry picked this in the conversation. But for those who are listening who didn't listen to our conversation, just the idea that there's there's ways to have a, an experience of wonder, almost especially with fantasy and sci-fi, and you know it's one of those. Um, 
four functions of the fantasy story that Tolkien writes about that, you know, to cultivate wonder um, is sometimes often done through just like pure immersion into a story, you know, when you just can't put it down, you can't stop listening, you just want to keep turning the next pages, page, just one more chapter. And that um, sometimes knowing the plot uh, and knowing the characters so well, the stories lose their luster, right? They become this thing that maybe you like debate about on Reddit boards, but it's not something that you feel wonder at. And I think um, then the analytical piece where you sort of break things down into their component parts and really dig and peel away layers and find connections and ask questions that are more intellectual about construction. And um, it reminds me like what I think about art um, that like I can go into a museum and just be, you know, totally immersed in these amazing paintings that are gorgeous, but that also when I, you know, when you study a piece and break it down and figure out like, what are some of the illusions that are being made in this piece? And what are some of the innovations that this, this artist is um, uh, implementing? What are some of the ways that they are in conversation with other artists at the time or the artists who came before? It kind of, it um, recaptures a wonder that can sometimes be lost. And I thought that like giving people the chance to do the uh, sort of like a modified version of what we try to do is um, a chance for them to see like maybe get a little portion of what I think the three of us are experiencing, which is that, man, I always really liked this. And I knew this method of inquiry was cool, but this is really fucking cool. You know, um, that, that's, you know, I think. That's, you yeah. Know, yeah, it's answers like that that I was listening to while listening to you two on that panel that made me really not just respect, but value and not just value. Those aren't, you know, those are lifeless words. I need, I need something more vibrant. I had a real feeling while I listened to you up there, you both sounded like experts and people I would want to talk to. And then I had the joyous realization that I do get to talk to you all the time. And you really did sound, and I know that neither of you claims the title of expert, especially not in the same way that I, I constantly attempt to arrogate that title, but that both of you sort of presented yourselves as learners. But it, part of that attitude and the fact that I think you're both very smart and the fact that you both really know your stuff really contributed to make you sound highly competent as well as highly engaging. Um, it's like when, when the, you know, I see a 53 minute uh, podcast, I think, man, that's long. But while I was listening, it was short and there just, uh, there wasn't even enough of it. I wish there, I wished there had been more. And um, there, there was one other thing that um, Wes commented on that just since we're talking, just since we're reflecting right now, uh, I, I'd be interested in sort of both of your perspectives on this, especially because Sarah, you're, you're so good at bringing in the Tolkien piece and I uh, also have that breadth of knowledge throughout Narnia, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, um, and, um, and Harry Potter, and have taught fantasy literature. But Wes, you made a comment about sort of second, the second part of our project being not only conducting ourselves in this manner of discourse and inquiry, but also considering contemporary mythology. I was wondering if you could say a little more about that. Yeah, I, I'll try. Well, yeah, I think that that's the piece we would have really liked you to be there for, <laughs> um, you know, the original right, right. For all of us to be there. And, you know, you had to go and uh, gallivant in the South Seas, and that's all good. But, um, you know, maybe next year we'll do a longer one and we'll really be able to uh, do it properly with all of us there, uh, or, you know, at some other conference too. But, but yeah, the, the contemporary mythology thing. So there's a few different ways to kind of come at that. I mean, on the one hand, you have like a lot of different um, sort of popular uh, fantasy, I don't know, films, TV series, uh, books, of course. Um, and there's, there's sort of, they sort of circulate, um, people gravitate towards them or, or pick your metaphor, right? But, but there isn't really like one single overarching um, storyline really anymore um, that, that sort of captivates and uh, and unifies, I guess you'd say, the the sort of like culture, and that's like in the nature of a democracy, I guess, is that you know people get to sort of pick what they like. 
Um, but, but that it's really valuable to see the ways in which all of these different manifestations of myth and fantasy have a kind of underlying similarity to them. You know, that, that the uniqueness of each one is, is in tension with its sort of um, similar structure or something like that. And to, to bring that out um, is really delightful because yeah, you start to see these connections. You start to see like what is going on um, in the author's uh, sort of activity that you, that you might sort of miss as just sort of reading it for pleasure. And that, that doing so gives you a, a deeper and more interesting and subtle kind of pleasure maybe. And, and maybe it lets you see something about the structure of, you know, your own story or your own um, relationships with um, other people and like how you construct meaning um, itself, right? Like that, that seems to me to be the great sort of goal uh, in doing this stuff is like, yeah, on the one hand it's fun and enjoyable and that's, that's valuable, of course. Like it, it makes, it makes getting through what sometimes is pretty boring, you know, um, daily, day to day work uh, a little more bearable. But on the other hand, there's this thing where like you, you're actually learning something about the way the world works, I think. And like maybe seeing something new come out of all of these different, um, you know, video games and, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, and like all this stuff, like how it kind of fits together. Um, and, and fits with, you know, much older and, and richer stories as well. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that's a really exciting element of it. Uh, I don't know that we have quite got a, a, a grasp on it fully, but that we're sort of pointing at it and saying, hey, like, think about this, like, do, do something with this. Yeah, that's especially exciting given just at this specific time, there being the last of the Marvel Avengers movies coming out in game, as well as the final Game of Thrones episodes. Yeah. Um, so, well, uh, Sarah, do you want to talk at all about that mythology element, or do you think we should jump into the text now? I think for the sake of time, I think we should jump into the text. Um, for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, so for this time, we covered Hermione's Helping Hand, Silver and Opals, The Secret Riddle, Felix Felicis, or Felix Felicis, depending on your Latin, The Unbreakable Vow, A Very Frosty Christmas, A Sluggish Memory, and Birthday Surprises. Was there one of those chapters or themes across those chapters or events that really struck either of you that you were, you're really uh, champing at the bit to dig into, to bite into? Go ahead, Wes. I, well, I, I was just looking at this stuff. I mean, what struck me this time was how, um, how dramatic, you know, some of the um, kind of social problems are. Um, we see, you know, something that's been brewing a long time, this romantic attraction between Ron and Hermione finally kind of come out into the open. Um, I thought that was really interesting. And it it sort of it sort of works as a neat counterpoint to the ways in which um, love of the kind that we've seen with Harry, uh, his uh, love for his mother, her love for him, um, Dumbledore's love for him, right? Those are sort of played out as well, um, and and also contrasted with the way that Dumbledore doesn't seem to fully uh, embrace the young Tom Riddle, right? Like he, he can't trust him fully. He can't really open up to him. Um, and that there's this, you know, weakness that comes with love also, right? So there, there's like this kind of fracturing of one kind of love, the, the friendship sort of thing that they have at, you know, as they are maturing and as they're Ron and Hermione are, are gaining an, another kind of romantic love as Harry you know, I was looking at Ginny in a, in a different light uh, and struggling with that. And that hasn't fully come out in the open yet, but I, I mean, it's probably starting to be noticeable to people um, as much as Harry tries to, to control it or deal with it. So that, that was the thing, I guess, that I would be tempted to call the, the overarching like, theme for these chapters that, that sort of links them. 
Yeah, and my goodness, that was something I think Sarah brought up in our last regular episode that relationships are more and more focused on and getting deeper and deeper and richer. And we, we even see more complicated things uh, happening, right? Like before we see Ron and Hermione come out into the open, we see sort of subtle hints with Hermione, say, complimenting Harry in chapter 11, saying, you're so fanciable now. That's why everybody's coming out and you're, you're so tall. And Ron almost bletching when he hears her say that and then saying, I'm, I'm tall and sort of trying to, and then, but also Hermione jinxing McLagan, who's such a fetching catch himself um, in uh, sort of to help Ron that uh, it, it's almost like she's disgusted with him, that it's so obvious that she likes him despite his obvious failings that, uh, and, and that he should just sort of get on with it. But then he, he goes the lavender route. He, well, actually I would like to ask you about that, Sarah. What do you think of um, how that goes down that uh, Ron and Hermione seem to be aiming towards something. And especially in light of, book four when Ron had so much trouble with Hermione going to the, uh, to the ball, the Yuletide ball with um, Crumb, who was such an excellent choice. And, and with him sort of uh, taking the least common denominator in Lavender. Well, I mean, it's hard not to just sort of revert to the, well, they're kids and they don't really have that well-formed prefrontal cortex, <laughs> um, but, but uh, you know, I think there's something about Hermione and Ron's relationship that uh, um, I think they don't love or maybe even don't totally understand um, how they feel like compared to what, like who they think the other person wants. Right. I think like both of them in in each other's eyes see themselves as like somehow not enough. Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, like and that's a, that's an and as somebody who has, you know, struggled with confidence issues all of her life, like it's, it's a mark of. I think childhood or adolescence and not um, adulthood um, that you like. You like who you are and you have like an accurate understanding of um, who you are to someone else. And if people don't like it, they can, you know, go fuck themselves, whatever. But um, I think, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm in, I'm having a sailor mouth kind of day, I guess, but um, it's May. It's May. So, yeah. So for example, right. Like Hermione is this extraordinary rules conscious person, right? She like is constantly you know, saying like, Harry, you could be expelled for doing that. Um, she's confiscating um, Weasley things that are out in the common room. Um, and yet for Ron, she broke a rule, right? She confounded Cormac mm -hmm. McLaggen. Um, and her, if I were Hermione, and sometimes I identify very strongly with her, um, that moment where I did something that runs contrary to the person that I present to the world. That person is a threat to who I am in this world. Like um, her identity in this school, um, which is their world for the time being, her identity is um, built up in all of these moments where she has, um, you know, been the person at the front of the class raising their hand, following the rules, trying to get everybody else to follow the rules. And so when someone um, like Ron, um, uh, when someone is in her orbit and for that person, she sacrifices a piece of this personality that she embodies um, because kids and let's be real, even adults, like who we are and who we present ourselves to be, it's like a really important navigation that we try to figure out when we're in adolescence, right? You're putting on a lot of behaviors, you're trying on masks. And I, I guess I, if I were her, I would see, I like you get a little bit vulnerable and then you pull right back. Right. And this person, Ron, when, and all of the things that she might be feeling about him, the confusion, the, are we friends? Are we more than friends? Um, why is, was he mean to me? Why is he being nice to me? I don't understand, right? 
Like you're just seeing it only from one point of view, but you think you're seeing it from all of the points of view. And I, I guess, I think for Ron, it's similar, right? Like there are moments where he um, doesn't feel like he likes what he becomes. I don't, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but um, I, I guess I can understand why he picks somebody like Lavender because she's easy. And because right. she confirms in him the the version of himself that's like easiest to be and um, doesn't involve challenge, right? Like I think, and just as much as, as Ron needs to become a better person, I think Hermione needs a little more flexibility. But like um, Lavender is an easier choice. She is ha- doesn't seem to have much happening upstairs. She seems to... Um, all she wants to do is like wrap her body around him, you know, all the time. And, um, and, and, and it, it just, honestly, it seems totally free of like brainwaves. Um, and, um, it makes sense to me that he picks her because he doesn't have to, like, he gets to put on a new mask, um, to be with her. Like he gets to be the big man on campus. I'm a free agent, you know, whatever. Like, um, I, I think that's sort of how I see it. Like that she is, she's the uh, low hanging fruit, shall we say. Um, and he, it's easier to pick. Yeah. What do you think about this, uh, this Wani poo, Wes? <laughs> oh man. I, I love the way she writes these scenes. Like, I think she has a real, a real knack for this for whatever reason. Um, I, I, I could um, just add that like the way that Ginny, um, plays into it, and the way that Slughorn plays into uh, it, it's yeah. really interesting. Right? There's sort of like there's a push and a pull where, like, on the one hand, you know, Ron is jealous of Hermione because she's been um, picked up by the Slug Club, and and he's like, you know, whatever. And she's like, well, I was about to invite you, but now I'm not going. So they each are sort of prideful in that in that interesting way that um, must be, you know, what part of what attracts them to each other. Um, and yet part of what makes them so sort of, uh, you know, fractious. Um, but also, you know, Ron is put up to sort of finally making a move of some kind because Ginny um, really throws it in his face. You know, he he isn't quite sure why, you know, seeing her uh, making out with Dean in the hallway makes him so angry. Um, she points out that it's probably because he has never kissed or been kissed, right? Uh, anyone but their aunt. Right. And so and so that must be pretty <laughs> harrowing for him. Um, and it's in front of his friend, you know, and Harry, of course, is feeling very complicated feelings at the time. And so um, that that sort of pushes him in a, in a direction as well. Um, and and I, I think that it also, you know, makes Ginny a more interesting and fully realized character because she sort of like stands up for herself like she dares him to yeah. call her a you know loose woman or, or whatever ruder term he might have found um and to not realize that most of what he's feeling is really jealousy right and and so he he does sort of abscond into this place where he can um not have to worry about that too much and, and get certain sort of creature comforts but but pretty quickly you know he realizes that 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 by itself isn't the thing either right it's not just the physical uh, gratification that he's been missing. It, it's something more than that. And I think, on the other hand, Ginny is probably starting to feel that too, um, just as Harry is starting to feel that too. It's like, you know, you sort of, you find out that with the, um, <laughs> with the love potions, right, as a, fo- as a form of like an extreme form of the simplistic, right, kind of falling in love idea, there, there's much more complex and interesting ones as well. Um, and you can also, I think, Go so far as to say that some element of that that lack of love of having been loved um, of even wanting to experience it is probably what makes Voldemort you know such a messed up kind of character um, and I, and I'll just come back to like wondering about Dumbledore's you know romantic love thing like he seems to be another kind of extreme mm-hmm. and so there's just like a very actually like complex portrayal of of modern ideas about love grafted onto much older ideas about love, like how it can make you kind of crazy, which is maybe the oldest idea about love, right? Um, it, it's all sort of 
just bubbling under the surface there. It's, it's really, really interesting. That, well, I mean, you, you touched on it completely. I wanted to make this connection and I think you make it even easier. I didn't, I wasn't thinking specifically about Dumbledore, but I think we should because we do get to go into the Pensieve with him again. And again, noting that he's on again, off again there. I don't think we always have him here. Hermione says in chapter um, um, 11, showing again that there's sort of an inconsistency or an inconstancy to him or that there's, there's, a, a, there's a, a hole that needs filling that uh, I, I think these students are going to have to fill. Dumbledore won't be around forever, this. Uh, but, it, but I really wanted to connect this to the secret Tom Riddle, the uh, orphanage that we meet him at, and the incidents we hear that he's caused, and the magic that Dumbledore displays. And uh, Well, I guess I'll start with asking you, Sarah, what, what do you think about the interaction between uh, Dumbledore and Riddle? What do you think about the fact that he shows this to Harry and he shows this to, to Harry second after showing the home from which uh, Riddle would have come and maybe even in context of the third memory we see after, after the murders. Um, but also just what do you make of this initial interaction and how does that relate to Harry's first interaction with Hagrid or, or even with Dumbledore? And, uh, um, and just what is it that we see there in relation what is it about the solitariness or the absoluteness or the wanting to be different of Voldemort, of Tom Riddle, that does not jive with the theme of relationships and deepening relationships? And what is so deeply wrong about that? I think it's in that chapter that Dumbledore says that uh, Tom Riddle at no time, or Lord Voldemort, has never had a friend. He's had many admirers and he likes trophies, but friends, no, 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 no. Yeah, the thing that I sort of wanted, this is a, a good opportunity to bring up the thing that I, I noticed um, as I was reading and listening is um, the idea that um, that Dumbledore points out at the very end of that chapter um, where he's, he's, he points out to Harry, like Harry notices, you know, he, he can't really believe that um, Merope chose to die rather than to stay alive for um, her son and and Dumbledore says, "Is it possible that you have some sympathy for him?" Um, and and by the end of the story, I think Harry points out that like, "Oh man, I did not believe that I was a wizard as easily as he did." Uh, and he finds some right. some fine distinctions between his story. I think the 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 parallels are fairly obvious, right? Like dead parents, um, you know, some random stranger coming in and telling you you're a wizard, blah blah blah. Um, but uh, I think Harry notices a few fine distinctions, and then Dumbledore points out, I hope that you notice, uh, one, that he, um, he likes to do things alone, uh, and that, yeah, that's when Dumbledore says, I don't think he's ever had a friend, and that there are some people who would say, you know, that they are, they are his closest confidants, but that what Dumbledore, I think, is saying beneath this claim that he's never really had a real friend is that... Um, uh, there's never really been someone that he's been vulnerable and like equal in power sharing with. I think um, what the all of the romantic complexities of this reading, one of the things that they like that Harry fears happening in his friend group is like, oh my gosh, what if they date him? Like, and by they he means Hermione and Ron. What if they date and then they break up, and then our friendships are forever changed. Or what if they date and they don't break up and then I'm on the outside forever, right? So these like these power dynamics that are um, a, a really important part of friendship and romantic relationship. He's like leaning into these emerging complexities, right? Like how do I be um, both a friend and a captain. How do I be a friend to Hermione and a friend to Ron and yet call them out when they're being shitty, right? These power dynamics, that's something that Voldemort has like never engaged in because he's never considered somebody like his equal, right? Um, and then like the trophy piece is something that I noticed this week because I think the reading for today also included like the necklace scene with Katie Bell and um, the the meeting with um, where Dumbledore goes to um, uh, the Gaunt, or not to Gaunt, to the Gaunt house, but where he goes to, I'm sorry, um, Burke, where he meets with um, the original 
founder of Borgen and Burks and talks about where he got the ring. And it's just, what I noticed is that um, there's these really like ornate objects of um, like seeming beauty, but certainly like um, uh, necklaces and um, rings and bracelets and um, trophies, these um, items that are of uh, value, they are shiny, right? Um, and that they're, um, in each of these cases, they're used as a way to like manipulate or dominate or exert power over or buy or control another person, right? Like, so the trophies that Little Riddle um, collected were evidence of his dominion over them, right? Um, or the necklace is a way for, you know, one person to exhibit a, a kind of dominance over the other. And what I, I thought it was a reflection of is that uh, like the kind of commodification of relationship, like, um, or the, like when, when relationships become transactions, um, when someone gets something from someone else and the power dynamic is inherently out of balance, those are the kinds of relationships that Voldemort prefers. And he's just, I think, really exceptional at getting things from people, right? Like being transactional and not um, vulnerable. Right. Like, right. And that's losing, sort of what, what, I, what I got from this episode. I think that the other part that that like really, I mean, honestly, kind of freaked me out as I was listening slash reading is how easily Tom Riddle as a boy can like fake something. Right. Can like uh, change his affect and his tone of voice to. Uh, um to be pleasing to the adult in the room, particularly immediately after he was scolded, like, I'm sorry, professor. Like, like just sociopathic tendencies of being able to um, kind of turn that on and off. And I think you see that later with Slughorn where he like, he knows exactly what to say to transact with another person and to like extract something from them. And all of those, kind of like seeing other people as like um you know a space to be mine or some, uh, like a thing to be mined as opposed to another human being to be like like to appreciate um is I think maybe a really for me a really key difference between um between him and Harry yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Wes. Uh, and, and that Slughorn connection I had just made myself, Sarah, that it's, what do you think of the fact that uh, this difference in power between Voldemort and this lack of vulnerability with him and his followers, and how does that affect what a friendship is, like Sarah was commenting on, and the fact that he's a legilimens, right? Like, he will actually read your mind and take information forcefully from you, as well as use the unforgivable courses curses and the fact that yeah like you said Sarah he does seem to have these like psychopathic sociopathic tendencies to be able to change on a dime to do that which he needs to to get what he wants as as well as how does that reflect Slughorn and and uh I, I there was one other piece of the question I really wanted to ask to ah oh, yes why why is it so important that these these most important or these biggest lessons that Dumbledore is teaching are not so much about teaching spells or magic but the difference between Harry and Voldemort and what do you think that is? Yeah that that is something I was curious about too is sort of what Dumbledore is up to by showing Harry these memories in this way like on the one hand he is seems to be establishing a closer relationship with Harry right he singles him out for this kind of special treatment um, on the other hand you know he is sort of placing Harry on an equal footing with him or, or even sort of like trying to indicate the ways in which Harry is going to have to act um, on his own sort of knowledge base um, and maybe showing him how to do some thought um, with, with the evidence that's presented, right? And I think, you know, it's in some ways um, just highlights the, the contrast with Dumbledore's relationship to Tom Riddle, right? He he isn't able to become close with this lonely orphan um, who is clearly in need of like guidance, right? Because again, yeah, Tom seems to not um, 
desire that the way that Harry really does, like from the beginning, desire uh, close friendships and and um, you know parental sort of figures. You know, he finds them in in the Weasleys in some ways. He finds them in Sirius, of course, um, and and now most of all, probably with with Dumbledore. Um, albeit, you know, the the ways that um, Harry is sort of struggling with his friendships. I think is another interesting sort of inversion of the ways that um, Voldemort just avoids that entire problem, right? Like he just has followers. He never has to to sort of negotiate those those kinds of of bonds with people. Um, and it's really, I mean, once we sort of learn more about the Horcruxes, it's really interesting to think of those as sort of what Voldemort has in place of, you know, giving his heart. To other people, he he sort of fragments it and and thinks that he's you know securing himself by by that way, um, and so like the way that Harry is sort of like divided in his loyalties to some degree, right, um, amongst his different friends and different responsibilities, um, that that's like the opposite of what Voldemort is doing in some ways of of um, hiding pieces of himself away in all of these. You know trophies, um, but I, I think it's really well done how the the Horcrux uh, is is like introduced subtly through all these little trinkets and magical items and and just items of like value to people. Um, how <laughs> I love how uh, Dumbledore, you know, the the magic that he is demanded to show right by the young boy um, turns out to be the magic that reveals how much more powerful Dumbledore is, right? That he he seems to light the wardrobe on fire and and the fire doesn't consume it. And and all that it does is is reveal like this thing that that Tom thought was secret, right? And 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 he has to um give them back and and not do that again, right? He he's like brought to heal maybe for the first time. Um, and you know instead of like latching onto that person and and trying to learn from him he immediately sort of shuts him off. Like you said, like he shows him a face of docility, but then, you know, goes off to just do his, um, his shopping on his own, right? He doesn't want anyone's help. Uh, he just wants to sort of take uh, the powers um, that he can uh, in any fashion that he can. I, I just, yeah, I, I think the, um, the contrasts with Harry are complex. Um, and I think that they become pretty, um, pretty interesting as we learn learn more about those uh, those Horcruxes, which are are so sort of tantalizing, right? Like many times, um, Harry's on the point of asking or trying to find out, and and Dumbledore says, you know, time's up; uh, it'll have to wait. Yeah, Sarah, I'm I'm very interested. To, to hear, what do you think about the idea that uh, Voldemort's sort of ultimate power, the thing that makes him so different from others, is an artifact called a Horcrux, which we'll soon learn actually derives its power from splintering his soul. It's a schismatic thing. It also uh, is, in fact, a splintering act. You actually kill somebody in order to do that as an, sort of an, an act of power over relationship or sort of like the Adlerian power drive defeating sort of the Freudian Eros drive and, and how that sort of relates to the difference between the choices of Harry and Voldemort and potentially even their nature. It's almost as if Voldemort wants to ever simplify the relationship between him and everyone else and that that's why he acquires more and more power, that it's going to be one of subjugation whenever he's around, to his mind, to his power, to his will. Whereas um, more Dumbledore's method is to open one's mind to possibilities and to the outcomes of differing possibilities. That's perhaps what he's showing to Harry and what Harry has already started to deduce for himself and sort of honoring the difficulty and the complexity of relationships. And like, like you were saying about vulnerability, letting himself be vulnerable and subject to emotion as he so often was in that last book, often negative emotion, mm -hmm. negative mm -hmm. emotion of public opinion that he, Riddle seems to have decided since he was hurt, he will hurt and he will never be hurt again. 
and he will ensure that that is the case. Whereas Harry has been hurt, but he seems to sort of empathize or sympathize or you know, empathize with other people about the fact that since he's been hurt, other people have been hurt and that sort of connects him with them and at the same time leaves him vulnerable while giving him strength. Yeah, I mean, I, I de- well, yeah, absolutely. I think there's, a, there's something that is, we haven't yet gotten to the, the actual definition of the Horcrux and the revelation of the, the true nature of that memory. I'm sure that that will be in our, in our next reading. Um, but yeah, the whole, I, I think it is a, a, a fairly clear distinction that Harry looks at, you know, think about him as a captain, right? He, he tries to bring people to work together as opposed to, um, you know, like what we see uh, of like Draco and um, uh, his mother going to Snape and um, Bellatrix Lestrange uh, saying like, oh, not everybody can know about this. Like, he he wants to keep uh, Voldemort keeps his um, his followers in the dark, right? Like a terrorist cell, where each little cell doesn't know what the other cell is doing, right? Precisely. And that's honestly for that's that's. I mean, that has a practical value, right? If one cell gets grabbed up, they can't rat on the rest of them. But um, but Harry does seem to be about at least in this particular book, like trying to figure out a way where he can like like merge people or like, like synthesize or bring people together. Right. And in like the last chapter that, or one of the last chapters, um, uh, just one detail that I noticed is that they were all seated together at the same table. Right. The same thing is true, like in potions. Right. I think Harry has these impulses of trying to stand out or like keeping things to himself. Right. Um, But even like these, these lessons with, Dumbledore he he I I thought it was funny that he like he asked Dumbledore for the permission to tell what they were talking about to um to Hermione and Ron because I think even if Dumbledore said no he would probably do it but like um that idea that like you need partners in this you don't need followers um and Harry's resistance to like having followers I think is a real distinction and the idea of like bringing people together versus severing or separating, I think is, is a pretty clear distinction between the two of them. I think in that scene with Dumbledore, when he's a little kid, there's this line where he says, like, he assumes that his father was the one who was magical because if his mother was a wizard, she wouldn't have died. And to me, that right there was like the first moment where I felt a little bit of sympathy for this, this like creepy child. And I think the movie depicts the the creepy child thing pretty well, which is why I'm like having that in the back of my mind. But, um, you know, for a kid who is extremely traumatized by that and then by growing up in this space um, and also having these kind of like yucky tendencies. Um, I don't know. I, I sort of thought like it, 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 it makes sense to me why he goes so far out of his way to avoid or run away from or try and master death by dealing it to so many people um, around him or using it as a threat, like why death is the worst. Um, because like in his mind, it is. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting is, you know, I, 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 you guys probably know way more about this than I do, like this debate over, I don't even know if it is a debate anymore, but this idea of like, is Tom Riddle just a really bad kid, like by nature, or did, was he made like a bad person by his surroundings, right? By the trauma that he experienced, by the complete lack of care and uh, in his like early upbringing, blah blah blah. But like I think about what Harry must have experienced at the Dursleys, and like, right? I I mean, Mister and Missus Dursley and Dudley weren't they weren't like a I mean I guess you could call them abusive, right? Like um, certainly neglectful and uh, yes. unfair, right? But like, is that the same as the orphanage, or was Tom Riddle as a kid? just like shittier than Harry as a kid. I don't, I don't know. Like, um, 
that's something that that I thought of as I as I was reading. But um, I'm not really sure if I addressed your question or if I strayed from straight from the point. But um, I do think that I think your question was about like drawing people together. Maybe one of the things that that exposing Harry to Voldemort's youth um, and like this scene at the orphanage. Maybe one of the things is to get Harry to see like how much of himself come is formed by his experience with where he grew up and are there any ways that that can be leveraged as a as a weapon in, in the service of good as opposed to seen as an excuse for being bad right like oh i've been traumatized i've never been loved that makes it okay for me to be a horrible person right can he find right. ways from his like suffering which is real um to, to like, can he see good in it? Can he see some redemptive or um, some redemptive value, some, some resurrection in like, yeah, you had a shitty childhood. Um, is there a way you can turn that into, you know, um, a strength as opposed to uh, an excuse? Yeah. I'm very much wondering what your answer to that question is, um, Wes, especially in light of the conversation we recently had, uh, about Zelda, we 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 came in. We came across a very similar question, Sarah, about whether um, whether one is responsible for one's action actions after enduring certain experiences. And I actually use the example of Harry Potter as opposed to uh, Tom Riddle. So, I, I, Wes, I'm very interested in that. And I, I also wonder whether you thought um, that uh, the fact that Harry even asks Dumbledore whether he can share this information with others was itself indication that Dumbledore was right about Harry being different because rather than wanting to stand apart from them, he wants to share everything he's learned and that that itself is a very different instinct from uh, Tom Riddle's desire to be alone, to be uh, separated, to be himself, you know, like a schism embodied. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just little things like that. Um, do seem to suggest a, a, a different kind of nature um, that each of these characters has. Um, there's indications, I think, that Harry has inherited, you know, certain, uh, we're told like prejudices, right? Of course, he always assumes the worst of Snape um, based on a, a long history predating him himself, right? With Between his father and with Sirius um, and Snape. Um, and that's one of the points where Dumbledore tirelessly has to kind of correct Harry, right? Professor Snape, Harry, right? Um, and that happens, you know, too often for it to be a coincidence. Um, and and he becomes, you know, rather um, severe with Harry when when he sort of won't let go of this this suspicion um, won't trust that Dumbledore has understood and maybe understood more than Harry did right from that scene that he, he saw right. between Draco and Snape. Right. So there's, there is still this kind of, you know, um, conflict between Harry and Dumbledore. They, they don't have a perfect, uh, ag agreement or understanding between the both of them. Um, but what's different does seem to be, yeah, Harry's desire for connection. Um, and for sharing um, and, and understanding the um, you know so that something like um, speaking parcel tongue right as Dumbledore points out like that that in itself isn't uh, necessarily a bad thing I think this is sort of to your point Sarah like even if you do inherit a certain kind of nature um, in some sense or even if you mm. are in some way other otherwise determined by like early circumstances or or overwhelming circumstances of of abject difficulty and struggle right it doesn't only have to play out in one way um that that there is always i guess a, a certain amount of um choice that enters in and mm -hmm. maybe luck even that enters in like the thing whatever you can't account for and that's you know that's very much it seems to be very much like belief in destiny actually right the way that 
when Ron thinks he's drunk the, the Felix Felicius, he acts as if he has um, incredible luck. And the mm -hmm. way that, you know, uh, even Scrimjower says, like, it doesn't really matter whether Harry is the chosen one. It matters whether people believe he's the chosen one, right? I don't think that that's wrong, actually. Um, obviously, from Harry's point of view, it matters a lot. But, but that's just another way of saying that he truly believes that he is the chosen one, right? And so I, I just think there's, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of of give and take um, when you start getting down to sort of like questions of determinism and free will and, you know, um, whether nature or nurture is more important or wh whatever it might be, right? It does seem like this story ultimately wants us to, to think about um, the ways that there's always a chance, right? There, there's always the possibility that um, what we sort of most deeply desire like matters and, uh, and has an effect. Um, I, I mean, I think yeah. we've shown a small amount of sympathy for Draco here too, right? Like he, he's one of the mm -hmm. most interesting mysteries that isn't like fully revealed also here. Like as much as Horcruxes, you know, kind of get our attention. Like Draco, such a, I mean, I've, I felt this way throughout the whole story. Like he's such an interesting little problem in, in that he seems to be determined. Um, and yet we see here, like he has very understandable motivations of, you know, wanting to um, make a name for himself, you know, sort of stand out and, um, mm. and do this on his own, like prove himself. So, yeah, I, I just, I think that that's another sort of, um, component to this as well. Yeah, I think um, um, that idea that there's always that there's always choice, but that um, you know, like that example of Ron and the the Felix Felicis, and and how well he performs, thinking he's had some um, uh, some magic potion with his pumpkin juice or whatever. I wonder if there's if there's like is there a freedom um, when we think certain things are out of our control, like this ironic hmm. or paradoxical reality? Like, is there, are we, are we free if we surrender some of that to say luck or providence or destiny or the gods or whatever it is that, um, uh, that is the prevailing force that we ascribe certain events to, you know, um, chance or something like is there something because he does so well right like is there something is there something about a belief that there are things that are out of your control that like is liberating um and that if if right. that is the case is it is there something about that choice that always exists um no matter what circumstance you have like as your quote-unquote nature Right. Um, there's something about like the choice that is just figuring it out, maybe too burdensome in, in, in certain places or in certain times or in certain certain circumstances. I don't I wonder about that, like that that choice is so hard or it's tough to navigate or there's something about it that's really hard to navigate when you don't have a mentor like Dumbledore or when you don't have a community of friends. Um, for whatever reason, maybe because you're a sociopath or maybe because you're just, you don't, you know, you don't want them. But um, I don't know. I don't know. What, what do you guys think? Is that crazy? Is that crazy? Or am I like way off base? I don't know. No, I don't no, think, I think that was good. Yeah, go on, Wes. No, I just, I mean, I'm thinking about, um, again, thinking about Draco here, um, where Snape is, you know, giving him every opportunity to open up and get some support and help, right? And it's that very thing, like to your point, Sarah, like that very um, suggestion that, um, that Snape wants to help is what causes Draco to sort of back away and, and mistrust him. Um, it's like he, he feels that he needs to do this on his own um, because that's, you know, part of his, his, uh, his great struggle in, in this whole thing. But um, that's so like diametrically opposed to um, Dumbledore and Harry's relationship where Harry would want 
sort of more from Dumbledore. And, and maybe it's because Dumbledore isn't overbearing with what he's offering uh, in, t in terms of help. Um, the, the idea that maybe a greater destiny is a freeing thing or, or a, um, you know, a, a love potion or a luck potion is a freeing thing. I mean, I think a, even the power of a dark Lord could be a freeing thing, right? Like, oh, I had no, I had no, no option. Right. That that's that seems to maybe account for some of the attraction um, for for even his very early followers. Right. Um, and and I think the ways that um, Slughorn tries to like cover up him, his own sort of being taken in by Tom Riddle um, are really interesting here, too. It's like uh, he recognizes that he made a mistake and he seems to think that it's too late to do anything about that mistake other than like cover it up and, and pretend that it didn't happen right um avoid responsibility in that sense like for for what's past is past kind of thing um that that's yet another way in which you can sort of uh, jettison responsibility um because of course you can't undo something right except maybe maybe there is a way right in this this um, this ongoing kind of confrontation that, that seems to always be taking place in, in stories anyway, right? There, there, there does seem to always be a chance for redemption here, um, as, as annoying as that might be to Slughorn at this point. Hmm. That's so interesting because it's as if there are two ways of then meeting your fate. There's sort of that liberating way of accepting it that Sarah was sort of mentioning that when you accept that you don't dictate the circumstances but can just move within them, that perhaps that's sort of the state of egolessness. You're not controlling, you're flowing that the, the Eastern religions talk about where you, you sort of just let yourself be a part of the things at work, sort of like a Japanese painting uh, with like a giant mountain and a tiny little man called the artist on the side, just a part of a part of things, which also reminds me of sort of like those good moments when you're in a game and you're just in the zone, right? It's like you're one with the game. This in fact been studied uh, recently by sports scientists. And just uh, your idea about belief dictating reality, like self-fulfilling prophecies, Wes, it's interesting, William James, uh, a 19th century pragmatist, uh, he wrote an interesting little piece on what is pragmatism. And he talks about there are two armies fighting against each other. Um, the one that believed they had a divinity on their side, if it were fighting against another one, Ceteris Paribus, um, that didn't, that it would almost certainly win. And just that it's, it's as if the Death Eaters try and, uh, uh, they try and obviate, or not obviate, but um, do away with their responsibility by following a Dark Lord in the same way that somebody might have said, I was just following orders, like the Stanley Milgram experiments or you know, the popular example of the everyday Nazis. Um, and that, that sort of, that, do, they think or delude themselves into thinking that that frees them from responsibility. It's a false freedom. It's truly a slavery. Whereas the true freedom that sort mm -hmm. of Sarah was bringing up is, is recognizing that opposite from the death eaters, you cannot control fate and just by trying to alter the fate of others, but that you can just rise up to your fate. Um, and so you, you sort of admit that you're going to die, that you're vulnerable, but you're going to do the best you can rather than doing all the worst things possible in order to sort of, I don't know, maintain yourself against others. Uh, again, in that naturally schismatic way, no matter what, to even separate yourself from your own autonomy of the will. Hmm. Yeah, just real quick, one thing that that makes me think of that I think is uh, maybe we talked about it a little bit last time. It, they they have to do spells without saying them now. Um, I don't know why right. what you said made me think of that exactly, but but something about sort of the um, the the recession of um, like self assertion back into a, a, a stillness or something like that uh, seems mm -hmm. seems to be at play there. Um, like that that seems to be such a major challenge <laughs> for for most things, um, except maybe not for everything. Right? Like there's there's that exception where Harry uh, masters the, the Levi Corpus spell right away um, for whatever reason. He just sort of in a 
maybe in that sort of good that good sweet spot of of not worrying too much about it and and just kind of um just messing around right uh so just one small sort of example right and well you know speaking of being in the zone and things just flowing time has flown without even noticing some some strange relativity has taken hold of us in this hmm. crazy seminar space and um well, y'all, just to be a little more mundanely minded, mundungusly minded, perhaps. Well, no, I'm not trying to steal from you. Um, what do y'all think about 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24 for next time? That would leave us a solid five and is a pretty healthy chunk of reading when I look at the page numbers rather than just the chapter numbers. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good chunk. I, I will try. That'll bring us through Horcruxes, right? Right. Okay. I think that's the. Did big. you say ni nineteen through twenty four or nineteen through twenty three? It could be. It could be just through twenty three. Just I suppose because of just. I mean that's ninety ninety what three pages right there. Ninety two pages. Ninety seven pages. Not not mm -hmm. hundred pages. <laughs> yeah. It's ninety three. Yeah. I think. I think. I just want to be um, attentive to like how much is going to be in the chapters. Um, sure. that like, if we're going to have quite a bit to talk about, um, I even think there are things that we didn't even quite get to in the reading for today, you know, right. but, um, like the unbreakable vow. uh, yeah. And like, what the hell's going on, uh, with, I'm, I'm just interesting. I think that whole chapter on Chris at Christmas was interesting and, yes. um, uh yeah i think um i think maybe going 19 to 23 will allow us to especially if we have if we feel like we want to catch up but also it that that's sort of a nice break because that's right after the horcruxes chapter i think yeah 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 sounds like we have a quorum we have an accord all right y'all okay. well um uh, just before we sign off, I suppose I'm going to ask a standard question, a question that maybe we'll return to from time to time, but it is May and it is May Day, and uh, we are all teachers, and I imagine we're all getting pretty tired and looking forward to this summer. Um, what would y'all be drinking tonight? I'll just go out and say I'd have a Yogi Kava tea. Kava is something they brew down in Fiji where I was, and I got to do a Kava ceremony, and that was cool. But I've liked kava since St. John's. My friend Chris Moore turned me on to it. And I'd have that, and it would be very relaxing. It's a very relaxing drink. Dang, that sounds good. I don't know. Maybe just like a little gin and tonic. I always feel like that's a nice summertime, yeah. looking ahead to summertime kind of drink. Hmm. Well, it's uh, Cinco de Mayo on um, Sunday. So, Woo! you know. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I'll engage in a little typical American cultural appropriation of something that we don't even really know the uh, the meaning of this day to Mexican history. But um, I think I uh, a good like a really good not too sweet margarita is what what tastes like summer to me. But um, you know, also like uh, like every like a ton of old white ladies, uh, a good white wine spritzer <laughs> to me, to me tastes like summer, but can you say that again, Alex? What is kava? Kava you mean is like, a, pro it's like a, Prosecco? Kava is a sort of, oh yeah, that's, yeah. there is a kava that, but it's a sort of tea that Yogi Tea puts out that uses a certain root from South America that is like Valerian root, but is more, it's like chamomile. It's calming. And sometimes you have interesting dreams based on it. It has sort of a cinnamony taste. I, it comes in a purple, like a yellow and purple Yogi box. If you use Yogi tea, uh, look out for that Yogi sponsorship mm -hmm. soon. Um, but I highly recommend mm -hmm. trying it. Um, that said, I definitely want to get a margarita too. Wes and I went straight for alcohol, alcoholic adult beverages. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, well, y'all are smart. and uh, But I'll definitely have that Cadillac. And I'll have uh, maybe I'll raise two for missing it the first time. So I have to make it up to that on Saturday. 
So, um, which is, I think, the best time to celebrate Cinco de Mayo, even though it's a day before Mexican Independence Day. But that's that's the extent of what I know about it, besides the fact that I enjoy it every year. Huh. Yeah, oh yeah. All right, y'all. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to this next episode. And again, it was a real pleasure to get to listen to y'all. And I'm sorry I wasn't at that conference, but hopefully we can do another one soon. Maybe... Maybe we'll start getting invited to those things eventually because people just like seeing us so much, at least like seeing y'all so much so far. Maybe we will wear costumes next time, Wes, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. We'll get our act together one of these days. That's fair. At least the (laughs) professor's black cloaks. I mean, why not wear one of those whenever possible? Right, right. totally. Sounds good. All right, take care, y'all. Take care. Have a good night.